This is the sixth Sunday of Easter, and so what I'm going to do today, we're, we're coming up on the Ascension, which is Thursday, a significant feast in the life of the church that nobody thinks much about because it occurs on Thursday, and in the old churchmanship days many, many years ago, I can recall being scandalized when someone told me at St. Matthew's Church in San Mateo that they had called Epiphany Church in San Carlos to ask them what time their Ascension Day Eucharist was, and they said, we don't have Ascension Day in the Episcopal Church. <laughs> Those of us with high church sensibilities were scandalized. <laughs> I always say either the Sunday after Ascension or the Sunday before my famous story, I say over and over again, which was my great sort of first crushing moment and a budding aspirant for holy orders when I ran the chapel service at St. Matthew's for the Sunday school uh, as a layperson before I was off to seminary. And in the old liturgy on Ascension Day, the Paschal candle, which is in the sanctuary, was put out at the Ascension Gospel. So Jesus ascends, the Paschal candle goes out. Now we keep the Paschal candle in the sanctuary for the whole of the great 50 days of Easter. So the Paschal candle goes out in Pentecost. And we had an old used Paschal candle in the chapel for the kids. So on the Sunday after Ascension, I said, what is not here this Sunday that has been here for the last few weeks in the chapel. Ooh, ooh, ooh. The Paschal candle. And I said, that's right. And why isn't the Paschal candle here anymore? Ooh, ooh. I pointed to one kid and he said, because we don't have to think about Jesus anymore. <laughs> What do you do, right? What I want to do today is preach on all three of the readings. Uh, since uh, about three weeks ago, there's been a switch. During the great 50 days of Easter, the, the readings that we read are about the uh, resurrection appearances of Jesus. And from then, about the fourth Sunday of Easter, we start reading about how the early church, the New Testament church, begins to put this into their hands, begins to move out and to somehow see the resurrection as in some way central to their self-understanding, if not the central event, and how they use that to become the transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love that they're called to be, and how we begin to see that they can say to others what their greatest place of safety and assurance is in the risen Christ. So we read this time of year often from the book of Acts, where we have uh, a, a, an account of the, of the earliest work, the missionary work of the church. So I'm going to preach about that. And then in Revelation, we have a wonderful passage about the heavenly Jerusalem and something about the light of Christ, which is one of the themes of the great 50 days of Easter. And then finally, Jesus in the Gospel of John today, part of his farewell discourse, saying goodbye before he ascends in the tradition. And he is giving them some assurances 
and some comfort about what is ahead for them in his absence. Father Thomas Keating says this time of year is a time, all the great 50 days of Easter, when we celebrate three great theological themes, God's light, God's life, and God's love. And these three things are manifestly present in the three readings today. So, the book of Acts, the reading today, is another commercial message for the revised common lectionary, because we meet another holy woman in the New Testament. We didn't read this reading very often if you read morning prayer every day, the clergy do, but uh, you're not going to hear much about Lydia, the seller of purple, and the women that Paul speaks with when he is told to come to Macedonia. So we have a record here of, once again, Christian leadership being exercised in these early communities by women, often prosperous women in economic terms, who were uh, prominent figures in these individual congregations. So there's another theme, though, in this uh, reading, which is not sort of absolutely central, but it's there, and it's important because we're talking a lot about it in the church these days, and I think we should, and that is the importance of hospitality. Lydia is about to be baptized, but she's already got it. It says she is a believer in God, and she invites, she extends to Paul and the apostles to come and stay with her while they're there. And they accept uh, her invitation. And it is a reminder that even in the New Testament church, we begin to see that the importance of hospitality is something that uh, characterized early Christian people. This is somehow hard for us to grasp. I don't mean this in a, uh, a, a sense to, to, to be negative. But you know, for so long in the church's life, we have believed that the church is a community that exists to pat each other into shape. And the Christian community exists to give it away. Archbishop William Temple, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury during World War II. In fact, he died in the middle, towards the end of the war. Archbishop Temple said, Christianity is the only institution that exists for people other than its members. But we forget that. And we've spent a whole lot of, have you ever read any of Barbara Pym's novels? Yes. So you know, in, you know, English church life, English parish life, it is the sort of, one of the geniuses of the Anglican communion in some ways, and in another way, we're all focused on, I wonder if I could open a tin of peaches for Mildred at the needle pointing meeting, you know. You know, so, so that, that's where, that's, it's nothing wrong with this, but you know, after a while, we gotta do something to, I keep telling you over and over again, the great moment that you are going to have in your life, I pray to God for, me, for it to happen to me, is someday somebody is going to look at you and say, how do I get what you have? How do I get what you, I notice some things about you that I find compelling. I'd like to, I'd like to be able to 
to do, to be like this. <clears throat> so what's the secret? And then you have a missionary opportunity and you may be able to, to engage in it without uttering one religious phrase. Because a whole lot of Christianity and being adept, you know, there's a, there's a term used in the spiritual life called Christian proficiency. Part of Christian proficiency is, is uh, the cultivation of being the best human being you can be. So somebody looks at those characteristics. The community out of which the gospel that we read this morning came, the gospel according to St. John, believed that in Jesus' words and in his works, they had seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. But it was not that they were just watching some tableau being played out in front of them, but that the Savior had in fact given them tools that they could use themselves and reassured them in the gospel in the, for the eyewitnesses that they would be able to do these things and even greater things. So somehow it is part of the mystery of God's plan for the cosmos that you and I have a role to play. And so contemplating the idea of giving this away uh, is, a, is a good thing. Old habits die hard and we're not speaking here of either or. We shouldn't stop patting one another into shape when it's necessary. But we also need to figure out ways to look beyond that and to see that we have a much more vigorous role. People who say, well, my circumstances, my health, my, my own situation preclude me from this. And God's call to each of you to do that is within the circumstances of your life. You can find the ways and the means to do it. And as a pastor, I have seen it to be so. Everybody has a role to play and has engaged in this kind of wonderful work. So today, hospitality and Lydia's willingness to listen and the women there who have been already exercising leadership prior to their baptism now move to that step where they're initiated into the body of Christ and become now uh, uh, on the way. They move on the way and join the Savior in his work. You know, the invitation. I always, St. Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, the great thing he always said was, as you read these passages in the Bible, remember that Jesus is inviting you to join him in his work. And that's what we hear today uh, in Acts. So Revelation, once again, every week I've talked about Revelation, I've said this. Everybody who read the book of Revelation when it was written or heard it read to them understood what it meant. The symbolism, the apocalyptic language, all of these things were understood. They knew who the seven churches were. They knew who, what was being talked about with the beast and the numbers and all this stuff. It wasn't necessary to wait for 2,000 years or 1,500 years or six, to wait for somebody to say, I'm now going to unpack for you the book of Revelation, right? So we've been breathlessly waiting for Hal Lindsey when he showed up in 1970 <laughs> to tell us what in the world was in the book of Revelation. Don't you believe that for a moment? All the big selling books about, I think the Left Behind series is the result of some cockamamie 
uh, exegesis of the book of Revelation. It just simply isn't so. So today, the writer is talking about uh, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is a great passage about God's light. And in this passage about God's life, uh, people who get deep into the history of, of Christian spirituality will recognize what uh, St. John of the Cross, the great Spanish mystic, used to talk about, what, which was the dark night of the soul. But the dark night of the soul wasn't dark. It was so bright you couldn't see. It became dark when it's so light you go like this and you don't see. So he's talking about this kind of illuminative brightness of the light of Christ. And by extension, as people begin to see this in process of enlightenment, they begin to see what their role is in God's plan. So the heavenly Jerusalem is not merely a vision of something somewhere else, but it is a vision of what the possibility may be in human society when people operate according to the principles of the kingdom of God. So for the people who wrote the book of Revelation, Here's what they understood. This was about the heavenly Jerusalem, which was a metaphor or a vision for what could be. And the heavenly Jerusalem for Christian people is the church. And you and I encounter the heavenly Jerusalem every week when we come to the Eucharist through word and sacrament or whenever we participate in the church's life where we uh, are, become receivers of the sacramental life of the church and we read or listen to the Holy Scriptures being read to us. And there, the community of the book of Revelation would have said is a location for understanding something about the light of Christ. Remember, I have told you the light of Christ is understood in two ways. As a symbol for the early Christian church of the pillar of fire that led, in, that led the people of Israel at night uh, as they were going through uh, the wilderness. And that the, light, and that the paschal candle was also the symbol of the internal light, the illuminative processes of God at work in each of us coming clear about what it is that we're supposed to be doing. Now in ordinary commonplace terms, that means that you and I should be about the business of clarity in our communication with one another as we live. So in the workplace and in your families and in your friendships and in your ordinary relationships with other people day to day, you need to be concerned about being clear. And there's all kinds of uh, you know, obfuscation going on uh, in people's uh, communication with one another. Have you ever, have you ever, there are some people who are particularly adept at this, and you feel like saying to them, could you just tell me what you mean? Just tell me what you mean. All right? Now, that requires some trust, doesn't it? And some belief that people aren't going to break if you, tell, if you do that. But we're not talking about extreme things all the time. I think... You know, the propensity in human beings for black and white thinking is such that, you know, it's either this way, you're clear, or you're not. You, you, you can actually be clearer than you are, and you can say what you mean. I always start from the principle, even though I am bitterly disappointed every day when I get up, that we all mean what we say. We all mean what we say. 
that I don't have to sort of figure it out, you know? I don't mean to pick on my dear departed mother-in-law, but Nancy used to always kid about this too. She'd come over and she'd say, is there coffee? <laughs> now, does that mean, is there coffee in the house? Does it mean, is there any coffee made? Does it mean, may I have a cup of coffee? Does it mean, may I make you a cup of coffee? What does it mean? Well, some people say, don't be such a fool. Of course, she wants a cup of coffee. You ought to be, well, we know that, don't we? But you know what? like Fritz, here's another, Fritz Perls, the founder of the Esalen Institute. He's sitting in a group in Big Sur. And a guy, and this is 1950-something, a guy's sitting there and he, he, he looks at Fritz Perls and he said, do you have a match? And Fritz Perls says, yes, I do. <laughs> do you want a match? Ask for it. So I don't mean to be silly about this, but clarity of communication is an important thing to do. You know? And so in some ways, this talk about the heavenly Jerusalem is in an odd sense with all of the apocalyptic language and the image of these things, which for us is completely lost because we don't think that way anymore, often. That... Uh, you begin to say this was a moment of clarity for that community, oddly enough. When I went to the, uh, the lecture by Alexander Shia at St. Andrew's Church about the Gospels, the four Gospels, a couple of weeks ago, he's, he's from uh, Lebanon. He grew up uh, in Birmingham, Alabama as a first-generation Lebanese in a Lebanese ghetto, essentially, in Birmingham, Alabama. And he said when he went to Notre Dame to college, it was a terrible experience for him initially because everybody thought so differently than the community that he'd been raised in. For him, the book of Revelation is completely understandable. Today, as a person from the Near East, people still think that way. We, we probably should keep that in mind, shouldn't we, in the current uh, issues that are, uh, you know, circular logic, a whole lot of things operating that way. It's still there. So, you know, clarity of thinking. Jesus is now saying goodbye to the apostles in what is known in biblical scholarship as the farewell discourse, which lasts for uh, some chapters in John's Gospel. And we read it now because we're coming to the Ascension. Thursday, Jesus ascends, and he is saying goodbye. And then we're going to start to talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit in a very direct way uh, to the community we call the church. So Jesus is comforting the apostles and the disciples uh, with regard to what's going to happen. And he said, when I'm gone, in so many words, you are going to have an advocate that will come which is the Holy Spirit. 
In the Greek text, advocate can also mean helper. So you are going to have a helper who's going to come. And this helper is not merely an external thing, it's internal, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. So in a couple of weeks when we get to Trinity Sunday, the bane of all preachers every year, and we talk about the Trinity and we talk about the role of God the Holy Spirit, we'll speak of it as unitive being, that the Holy Spirit of God is the glue that allows the love of God to flourish in our heart and in the midst of us. So we also use the term, don't we, when you're in a, a community of like-minded people or of something interested, interesting that you're part of, that you say there's a good spirit here. And we mean in some ways that uh, energy and that ability to uh, give us the strength and the stamina to meet the challenges and the opportunities that are always in front of us. I thought I'd say something today about uh, a, a way that Christian people talk, uh, and certainly we continue to do it in the Episcopal Church and in, in the other faith traditions, and that is that um, the Spirit is leading us. You know? What does it mean when we speak about the Spirit leading us? And does it mean that anything that pops into our head or into our collective consciousness as a community that we're contemplating is the movement of the spirit? You know, it's pretty easy to use it in those terms. Dr. Reginald Fuller, who was one of the great New Testament scholars of our tradition uh, in the 20th century, said this, it is not the work of the spirit to convey ever new revelations, but to enfold in ever new understanding, interpretation, and application the once for all revelation of Jesus Christ. And today the Savior says, all that I have said to you. Now elsewhere in John's Gospel, Jesus said, I have other things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Now here's the connection. If we believe that each of us have a role to play in God's plan for the cosmos, both corporately and personally, this means that the other things that I have to say to you that you cannot bear actually come clear as we are continually intentional about the practice of our faith and as we seek to be the best human beings that we can be. And so the church in its common life, both with regard to its understanding of the, the, the um, mystery of God at work in the world, and remember I use the term mystery not to mean what we don't understand only, but something that is infinitely knowable. And some of you are engaged in certain kinds of disciplines in your life, either for your work or for your interest, where you have discovered as you have applied yourself to these things that newer and newer revelations come to you. They're already there, but you now see them. And so this is what Dr. Fuller is speaking about in terms of the operation of the Holy Spirit. What would we say would be a test 
of whether or not those things are uh, authentic or our, our best guess would be we're on the right track. And I say again what Houston Smith said in his series with Bill Moyers some years ago, when Bill Moyers said, how would you know if you're making any spiritual progress in any of the great faith traditions that we're talking about here? And Dr. Smith said that the invariable test for determining whether or not you are making spiritual progress or the work of the spirit is at work in you is if you see in your life and in your work an increase in generosity. And if you don't see that, no matter how much insight you believe you have, this is not spiritual progress. He wasn't speaking about generosity as somebody who is giving money away to everybody, although that may be part of it. He was speaking about the generous impulse in human terms, where we take one another seriously, where we feel in some way a more generous uh, view of people that we used to have some reserve about, right? <coughs> that somehow we just have a generally uh, generous view of human humanity. We, we begin to agree with Desmond Tutu that if people are made in God's image, we ought to genuflect to them like we do to the Blessed Sacrament at the Eucharist. And that we come to see the truth and the power of that knowledge. So in some way, that means that the work of the Spirit produces something that you can see. I'll have more to say about this on Pentecost. So give thanks for uh, the opportunity to practice hospitality in big and small ways. It's a generous impulse, isn't it? So the willingness to do that. Give thanks for any insights that you may get and thank God for them. And remember that as you seek to know God's purpose for you, uh, you don't have to do this all by yourself because the Savior has sent a helper. Amen. <laughs>